Welcome to Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics. That's comic books, everybody. This is the only podcast hosted by two brothers talking about a thing they love, and that thing is comic books. I am one of those two brothers slash comic book fans slash kind of comedian, Kevin Hines. And I'm the other uh, brother, co-host, kind of comedian, Will Hines. How you doing, Will? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. Um, here we are back on our normal remote recording style. Last episode, we were face-to-face. Yeah, we're back in the desolate corners of Los Angeles and the tri-state area mm-hmm. <laughs> where I live. Um, so this is so no longer in the hubbub, the fast-paced world of Cape Cod. Yeah, we had to leave the metropolis of Chatham back back to the back country of LA and the New York metropolitan area. Yeah, where we fit in. Slow it down a little bit. We're sort of cowpokes. We're simple folk. Uh, we take it easy. Or we're like we're like farmers at heart. Um, and we are about to in this episode start a new season. Uh, I think it's we're going to cover. I think it'll be a six episode season. We're going to mm-hmm. cover some highlights of the work of Kurt Busick. Yeah, Kurt Busick, comic book writer, one of our favorites, one of everybody's favorites. This is a this is a big, uh, important comic book writer, especially in the world of superheroes. And um, if you don't, if you aren't familiar with him, you're gonna love his stuff, and we're excited to introduce it to you. Yeah, uh, especially if you, uh, especially if you love superheroes, he does some stuff that is not. He's done a lot of great superhero work. He's done some other cool stuff as well. Um, but yeah, uh, I mean, for a long time, he was just like the, a Marvel guy working on tons of Marvel stuff. He's done, obviously, some DC stuff and uh, a lot of creator-owned stuff at this point. But um, he sort of came into our awareness at Marvel, um, even though I think he started at DC. Uh, uh, but he came into our awareness at Marvel and really became a huge deal for a while. And now I think he's just well-regarded. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and overall, what are, even though we're going to cover a lot of these, just for people who maybe are getting the name Kurt Busiek mm-hmm. in their minds for the first time, what are the what are the big like bullet point works? I mean, the thing we're covering today, Marvels. That's that's probably his. still his most famous work. Would be Marvels, I would guess. Um, though it might be Justice League versus Avengers, which has been in the news because it was drawn by George Perez, who passed R. I. P. recently. R.I.P. Um, and is just sort of this probably the last hurrah of the Marvel DC crossovers, at least in the foreseeable future. And now that they're both now that Marvel's kind of this Disney thing and, 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 and DC is uh, kind of being pushed even harder by Warner brothers. It just feels like there's more red tape to get through to team up these characters. So it seems less likely to happen in the near future. Yep. Um, uh, he, he's also known for Astro city. That might not be as big a commercial success as Marvel's, but that's like, that might be the most Kurt Busicky thing that I, I've read by him. That's his biggest creator-owned uh, thing as well. Yeah, I, I mean, he started it just a real quick, very brief, filled with errors overview. <laughs> That's our style. Uh, he he started off, I think, doing a few things for DC, but then came over to Marvel and did like I think a short run on Power Man and Iron Fist. Um, kind of bounced around just on a handful of titles for a while, and somehow, uh. uh got to work with Alex Ross. He had befriended Alex Ross when he worked at a different company. Um, but Alex Ross was basically looking for a writer to help him 
create the pitch for Marvels, what would become Marvels. Uh, and so they kind of joined up on that. And obviously, I think Alex Ross's art was a huge part of selling this. Oh, sure. Kurt Busiek, Busiek uh, really um, kind of just really wove a really nice, simple, fun, smart story out of all that stuff. Uh, and that book, which we're going to cover in greater detail in a little bit in this podcast, was a huge hit. Yeah. Um, uh, and that sort of launched his career and got him lots of opportunities. I mean, he was also well-liked by a lot of the editors, but like that put him on the map for sure. Here's, uh, and, and then he kind of went on a real big run in the 90s. Like he did Untold Tales of Spider-Man, which you and I really liked. Not a huge seller. But then he got to do the relaunch of Avengers and Iron Man. Uh, shortly before that, he also had done Thunderbolts, which was kind of a surprise hit uh, and launched Astro City, as Will had mentioned. Uh, and then, like, after Avengers, like, he kind of was just a name after that. He did, like, a run on Conan for Dark Horse. He did a run on Justice League. He did a, a couple other things for DC, like something called Power Company that I think is underrated. Uh, a lot of other creator on things like Autumn Lands and Shock Rockets and things like that. Uh, he did Superman Secret Identity, which we'll cover in another episode, as well as Batman Creature of the Night. And they're all just like these really cool books. Now, if I had to um, take now, I'm I'm less knowledgeable than Kevin on almost all things uh, uh, in comic book world and maybe in all things, but definitely in the comic book world. But I'm if I had to describe like what separates Kurt's work from other writers, I mean, first of all, he is just an excellent writer, just in terms of the nuts and bolts of a good story, his Characters have a little flair. He introduces whatever the reveal is right away in a fun little grabber. The dialogue is good. Just like just at your basic comic book story writing skills, he's really good at all of it. But what makes him particularly good are two things. One, he was the first writer that I was aware of who just seemed to have an encyclopedic knowledge of all things comic book. He seemed to be the guy that you could imagine just saying, you know, you'd be having lunch with Kurt Busiek and say, hey, when was the first time that Adam Savage appeared. You'd be like, oh, that's FF81 and blah, blah, blah. And it was named this and did this. Like just one of these. Adam like, Savage, the star of Myth- Mythbusters. Oh, what's the guy's name who's the the who's revealed as like the perfect man in the Fantastic Four? Adam story? Warlock. Adam Warlock is who I'm thinking of. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking of the guy from Mythbusters. He's a Marvel comic character who <laughs> launched a very successful uh, television show, Mythbusters. Well, for, if, if uh, I had said that channel. mistake to Kurt, I think he was a guy who would both correct me and know what I meant. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and just had and had huge references to to the history. And then um, he also threw Astro City and Marvel's. I'm just glad you didn't call him Wolverine. Well, I did. He is Wolverine. Wait, what am I saying? <laughs> um, yes, I will continue to think that every hero and soon every just entity is Wolverine. Um, he's uh, he the whole like, what would the everyman think of this? Like, let's look at a famous thing again through the eyes of the everyman. He does it like in many ways or actually hang on. I'm going to revise that. Not just the everyman. He's he's good. At, he's big at taking a thing that you know of, whether it's a story or a character, and like let's look at it from a different point of view that reveals a whole new side of it. Like, yeah, he's definitely done that a lot. I think he's also just really good at, um, like your classic just good superhero yarns, just like a good fight, Avengers versus Ultron type stuff. He's really good at that stuff, and and that maybe sounds like a very simple thing, but. He does it in a way that doesn't feel like he's like, oh, I need to fix the Avengers or I need to to make 
uh, uh, Iron Man cool again. He does it as a way of like, no, Iron Man is cool. I love, like he was writing, he loved Iron Man before the movies. Right. And he did a run on Iron Man that I think is pretty good. It, it, Iron Man's not a character that worked for me, but it didn't come. He, I read his run because I was at that point all in on the Kurt Busiek train. And it didn't read like a guy who felt like he needed to change Iron Man to make him work. He was a guy who was like, all the pieces that make Iron Man cool are here. I'm just going to uh, play with those pieces. And sometimes that's missing from comics. Like uh, it seems like creators come in, they're like, they need to either prove to you a character's cool or change a character to make it cool. I think that happens to Aquaman a lot. People are like, oh, he's a joke. So we're going to make him cooler rather than being like, what already made out? What made Aquaman a hit? Right. Uh, for so many years. Like it's not like he was a three issue miniseries and vanished. It's like, this is a character that worked. Yeah. What made him work? Let's see if we can recapture that. And he's really good at that. Like his Avengers run um, feels like classic Avengers, even though it came out in the 90s and not right. in the 60s or 70s or 80s. Right. Like Roger Stern had a classic run in Avengers. Obviously, like Roy Thomas had a great run in Avengers. Stan Lee had a run in Avengers. But something about Kurt Oops. just felt like uh, this is classic Avengers. This is what Avengers should be like. Um, and anyone who's not doing this is doing it wrong is what it feels like, even though there's been lots of runs after that that feel very different that yeah. people love. That that was like one of the last runs that just felt like oh, this is what the Avengers was. It, it, it uh, He has that ability. Uh, even his Thunderbolt run, despite being a very different thing and coming at it from a different angle, has a little bit of that. Just like Marvel stuff is cool. Let's have fun with it. Yeah. Um, how did you first get into Kurt Busiek? Yeah, I was trying to remember this. I feel like um, uh, uh, I must have picked up. I have issues of Marvels, the, the the issues, not the the collection. Right. So I must have seen those on the rack. It, now this is ninety three, so this is when I was uh, in college. So I was not going to comic shops very often. Um, I still had like a small pull list in Connecticut. So when I would come back for the holidays, I would pick up stuff, but I had like greatly reduced it knowing like, I can't come back to 50 six comics. months of comics. So yeah. I was like, let's just get, and also Marvel comics had gotten pretty bad in my mind at this point. There's a few DC things I liked, but I was sort of just like, there weren't a lot of things that I was loving, mm -hmm. uh, but I would still go into comic shops occasionally and just pick up an issue or two of things. Um, and I think I just picked up, I don't even know if it was issue one. I think it was maybe issue two or three of Marvel's. And I just saw it on the rack and the art, Alex Ross's art was so cool looking. Yeah. That I was like, well, I'm flipped through it. I'm like, oh, this just looks good. And I bought it and then probably got like a reprint of issue one. Cause it was like one of these things that was a big seller, but also like they understood, no one knew how it would sell. Yeah. It was a little more expensive. Uh, I probably had glossy covers, that sort of thing. Um, so I don't actually know for sure when I bought it, but I know I saw it on the rack and picked it up and then like got the other three issues hmm. because I enjoyed it so much and then bought the trade whenever that came out. Cause trades also weren't a given yet at that point still, it wasn't like yeah. this will definitely be collected into a trade paperback. I can just wait. Right. It's like, get it this way or you might not ever see this again. Right. Um, so I definitely bought it and I loved it, but I don't think that necessarily locked me into getting everything uh, Kurt wrote, it wasn't until I started getting Until Tales of Spider-Man, um, which I yeah. started getting around issues six or seven. Um, uh, there's like an issue where he fights the vulture uh, that I 
that I got. And I was like, I just kind of, it was 99 cents. I was like, uh, I flipped through. I was like, this just feels like what I want Spider-Man to feel like. And now we're like in the middle of the clone saga for Spider-Man. So I had not been reading him for a while. Yeah. Um, and I was like, no, this is what I want my Spider-Man to be. And I just picked up the issue. And then very quickly, I was like, oh, I'm going to get every issue of this. This is just exactly. And it was only 99 cents. And then somewhere reading that, I, I became convinced, like, oh, I'm going to get everything he did. Because at this point, Astro City had already launched. Uh, and so I started getting that. Uh, uh, and then Thunderbolts launched shortly after that. And I tried that. And then I'm all in. You know, yeah. Astro City, Thunderbolts, Untold Tales, Spider-Man, Marvels, all being great. It's kind of hard to say, like, well, I'm not going to read his Avengers run. I don't like Avengers. I'm yeah. Like, oh, this guy's doing Avengers. I'm in. Yeah. Um, I, I don't remember when I discovered him either. It was somewhere in the Marvels, Untold Tales. Probably you recommended Untold Tales to me. But I also remember seeing Marvels on, like, a rack somewhere. I'd moved to New York City. I was not buying any comic books on a regular basis except for like issues of Love and Rockets and Sandman because I was stubborn. But um, to I wouldn't give up on those. But I, I, I guess just in buying those Love and Rockets and Sandman, I had noticed Marvels. You know, just the giant man stepping over the camera lens. Yeah, uh, art. Yeah, was, c- maybe even that, that was on a promotional poster or something hanging up in under St. Mark's Comics or something. I mean, it's the cover of the trade I have. It might be the cover of the issue that that happens in too. It's just St. Mark's Comics. I meant not under St. Mark's Comics. St. Mark's yes. Comics. But um, yeah, it might be. And but I also remember that he had a friendship with Scott McCloud, and um, Scott McCloud is most famous for writing the Understanding Comics book that like a lot of teachers would use to like teach comic books and stuff. But Kevin and I, and also third Heinz brother, Brian were fans of Scott McCloud because of his now little known series Zot that was in the eighties. So McCloud loomed large in my mind as somebody who was great. And then somehow it, w- it was discovered that these guys had grown up together and were childhood friends. And actually in the very first couple issues of Zot, it says either like co-written with Kurt Busick or like, plot assist by Kurt Busick or dialogue help by Kurt Busick or something in like issue one and two of Zot. So like this guy that we were discovering in the mid nineties and who was exploding with all these projects, I then looked in the mid eighties and he was there. Yeah. And then of course you discover his like letter to the X-Men in like 1980 telling Chris Claremont, they really screwed up by killing Phoenix and then find out that it was his pitch to bring Phoenix back that eventually was used uh, to yeah. bring Phoenix back. Like he's kind of, he's been there forever. It seems. Yeah. And as a kid, he and Scott wrote a comic book for the Boston pops, a promotional comic. Have you heard about this one? No, I didn't know about this. Um, like, I think they were teenagers um, and somehow they got the ability, the, the chance to write a comic book for the Boston pops that was doing like superhero music concert. And they even got permission from Marvel and DC to use their characters as long as anything that was not you given that that concert was pulped, like they weren't like going to hold on to these and sell them in some ways. And so Kurt wrote a story where like Marvel and DC superheroes fought at a Boston pops concert or something. And uh, Scott McCloud either drew it or, or laid it out and somebody else finished it or something like that. But like, it's like a 12 page story that they did. Um and like before either of them was working in the comics industry. Uh, so like that also is a thing that exists out there. I think Tom Brevert, Brevert uh, uh, just talked about that on his blog recently. 
So it's a very cool little weird thing that exists. Like the art is very much a, oh, this is somebody in high school who's not that good yet. Yeah. Um, and I haven't but, read the story, but, but like, two guys who would go on to be pretty big figures in the industry. Yeah. Just two guys like working it out, figuring it out. Uh, yeah. It'd be uh, like, oh, Scorsese and Spielberg did a movie together when they were 16, you know, uh, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I want to see it. Yeah. It's um, something, it's definitely something like that. So yeah, this guy's, uh, I mean, this guy was plugging away forever. Um, he's one of those overnight successes that was working in the industry 20 years when he right, had his overnight right, success. Right. Uh, um, his name still means a lot to me. If Kurt's name is on something, I know that it's special, um, that I know it's going to be like thought through and really good. I kind of think of Dan Slott as a Kurt Busick type where Slott seems to be able to like take existing properties and understand the story mechanics of what makes them good. He has an encyclopedic knowledge of what's come before. Um, yeah. Mark Wade, Mark Wade is also, I feel like, cut from the same cloth. Mark Wade somebody who seems to um, truly understand superheroes and comics and be able to do like both like cut and dried awesome just great superhero stories but also like kind of come at it from a new angle a fresh perspective type thing um for a while like i used to think of mark wade as the dc kurt um just because yeah. mark was doing like flash and uh things and did justice league for a little bit hey you ready you ready for a, a hot take sure not even a hot you know not a hot take oh, but like goes. marvels is terrible marvels is bad <laughs> Uh, well, it's, it's, you know, the art is what I don't like. It's just not easy to look at. Sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, um, not even a hot take, but like a thesis, which is that you could think of Marvel's comics creators in these three generations. You got really four, but I'm going to do three. So the originals, the innovators, your Stan, Jack, Steve era, where they are wild west creating the universe. Right. Then you got in the eighties, your John Byrne, Frank Miller's, uh, Chris Claremont, Walt Simonson's. And these are kind of like, they um the 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 rabble rousers like we're get, you know things have gotten stayed here we're gonna shake it up and change everything to make it new again we love we love that original stuff but we've gotten away from it so we're gonna get the magic back through like daredevils and ninja new x-men right yeah uh blah 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 uh beta ray bill shows up on thor then you got the next generation which is like we're gonna bring the magic back but like quietly, like, no, I'm sorry. I got it. Reboot the reboot guys. Like we are doing stories where the store part of the appeal is that it is a new look like superior Spider-Man Marvel's Thunderbolts. Um, you know, e- e- even like the, the, the immortal Hulk, I would say is like, it's sort of like a, I know it's much How does later. That- but how does that fall into your metatextual writers, which I think Immortal Hulk is more about, like the remixing? I think Kurt Busiek and... is the beginning of the remix culture, basically. Okay. Kurt Busiek is like he's like the Elvis Presley to to Immortal Hulk's Beatles or whatever. It's like it feels Kurt, so different to me. It feels like that's two different things, but it's your theory. There's something related about it, like the appeal of Marvel. Well, we'll talk. We should wait till we talk about it. But I, I'm going to introduce the theory that Kurt Busiek is the beginning of the metatextual generation. Okay. Right. I, there's something I'm, ready, about, I'm ready to be shut down because as I always like to yeah. acknowledge, I don't know what I'm talking about. Well, and, I just think there's something about what Kurt was doing and Mark Wade was doing and Slot who did it later on. Um, and there's still writers who do this to some time. Uh, there's a back to basics approach to what they're doing where the guys who do it now, 
and like i feel like more like morrison was more of like the pre amp the oh, this is interesting yeah so like the Hick- precursor Hick- to like Hick- hickman yeah 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 and, okay okay and I see what al you're ewing where they're sort of like it's, it's almost like oh this is wild <laughs> it's more like now what you'd say about this stuff and yeah now that's it feels true like it's even though these some of these guys are really good at character stuff it's more plot first where kurt and wade and slot feel more character first Okay, but like I see what you're saying. Like it definitely feels like this '90s stuff is the the good stuff we're talking about is more back to basics than like what Hickman's X-Men, Ewing's Hulk would be for sure. But there is something about Kurt's stuff which is like I assume you, the reader, already have a relationship with all of these properties, and that relationship is part of what's going to make this enjoyable like the fresh look on something you know. I assume you know about Reed and Sue's wedding. And that's why this panel is interesting. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to spell it out. Um, so there's, there's, um, something, there's something in that that, is, that leads to Hickman well, and Ewing. I think this is our big divide, Will. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I love Immortal Hulk and I love... I'm going to keep Marvel's. working this theory as we talk about it. So if they're connected, that's fine by me, but they feel so different. I mean, also it's... 30 years. Yeah. Okay. Them. You're, you're, uh, so yeah, I, I accept that, that aspect different. of it just feels, it's but I like, think how it, could they be? I mean, yes, of course they're built on in the same way that like what Kurt is doing is built on what John Byrne and Frank Miller did. Yeah. But I wouldn't say like Frank Miller was the first step towards Marvel's. No, definitely not. But like that's there, 15 big, years, 10 years, less time difference. There's a bigger difference between Miller Byrne and Busick. There's, you know, conceptually than Busick and Hickman, I think. Like Astro City is closer to Hickman than it is to Born Again. All right, we'll, we'll talk more. Um, yeah, anyway, uh, uh, so Kurt's great. And we're going to be covering six big, what I consider big works of his. We're not going to cover everything. Mm-hmm. We're going to do some things overviews. that are, are really big as well. And we're not going to do them necessarily in the order they happened. Yeah, we have um, a special order picked out. I just, I have a, it's a random order because I wanted to end with Astro City, which is an early work, uh, kind of early of his work, though it's still ongoing as of this point. Um, so we're starting with Marvels, which is like his breakout thing, feels right. Then we're going to cover Thunderbolts, uh, very appropriate because now there's rumors of a Thunderbolts movie in the works. Exciting. Um, then we're going to do Untold Tales, which um, is a favorite of ours. Yep, that's a Heinzbro favorite. Then we're going to do Avengers. Which uh, after Marvels, I think it was sort of like him locking in as like this guy's the real deal. Okay, and then Superman's Secret Identity, which I think was a huge hit, but sort of doesn't get talked about enough. It's so good, and you haven't read it, and I think you're gonna love it. Will can't wait. Um, and then we're gonna end with Astro City, which is probably like his. Like if if there's one book that like is gonna be chiseled onto his gravestone someday, this is the one it should be. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a gruesome way to look at it, but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, every, if we ever, if we ever meet him, that's what we're going to tell. We plan on yeah. going to your We've made your gravestone. Here it is. <laughs> creator of Astro City. And he created that with Alex Ross, who does Marvels, uh, and Brett Anderson, uh, who's just a great artist as well. Yeah. Uh, so it's also a nice bookend to Marvels, Astro City. Cause, and it's also similar sensibility to Marvels. For sure. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's, should we take a break and get into Marvels? Well, that's an early break. You folks ready for that, listeners? I think you're right. Feels right. Feels like this is break time. Okay. 
Hi, this is Kevin. I'm here with my brother, Will, and we are the hosts of Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics, our weekly podcast about comic books. And we want to hear from you. We have a slew of social media accounts, a slew. You can email us at screwitcomics at gmail.com or see us on Instagram at screwitcomics or tweet at us at screwitcomics. So tell us what you think of the comics you like or the comics you don't or things we've talked about on our episodes. Or send us some life advice. You can tell that we need it. Yes. Uh, We might read your message on a future episode of our show. So thanks in advance from Screw It, we're just going to talk about comics from Campfire Media. All right, and we are back. Kevin, let's get into Marvels. So, um, right. so Will, what is Marvels? Marvels is a four-issue miniseries written by Crypto. That's all you need to say about it. Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> so go what, what do you think, Marvel? How would you describe Marvels as something? Did you mean that seriously? Do you want me to actually try to do yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then I wanted to interrupt you. Just It's a four-issue miniseries. Yeah, that's basically it. That's what Marvel's is. Four-issue miniseries written by Kurt Busiek, drawn by Alex Ross, which um, uh, follows the life of a photographer who lives in the Marvel Universe. And through his eyes, we see a lot of the major events of the Marvel Universe kind of from his perspective, drawn with Alex Ross's amazing things. And so it's like revisiting milestone events in Marvel's fictional history through the eyes yeah. of a news photographer. And it was a huge hit and established Kurt as a and Alex as yeah. forces to be reckoned with. Largely covering like the first decade, right? Of Marvel. History. More than that. It, like it starts 1940 through 1974 is right. about the times that it covers. So like the first kind of two generations of Marvel stories, right. sort of. But three issues of it cover like Fantastic Four to Gwen Stacy, which is the first decade. Yeah. 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 Uh, but I had forgotten uh, about that first issue that it is solidly in the kind of pre-Stan Lee II. era. Yeah. Um, and I had forgotten that that's a fair amount of real estate on that. And um, yeah. And I believe this came from Alex Ross. I think Alex Ross wanted to do a story that started with the birth of the original Human Torch and ended with Gwen Stacy. I think that was what he came to Kurt with. Okay. Um, like, like that was the framework. And I don't think. From reading from reading like the intros and outros of the trade the trade that's the research I did into this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot. It sounds like he didn't think about including like Galactus, okay, <laughs> which is like a pretty big <laughs> thing to skip over. Uh, but kind of when he was talking with Kurt about it, and Kurt sort of was helped him like iron out. Well, let's do it from this perspective of what would pe- what would the people on the street know about these characters. Uh, and then all of a sudden it's like, well, they would know Galactus. That would be like one of the biggest things that ever happened. <laughs> right, right. Um, a god comes from space and threatens yeah. to eat the planet. So, yeah, it sort of becomes a street level view of the Marvel history through Gwen Stacy's death. Uh, and it's great. It's a it was commercial success, critical success, fan mm-hmm. favorite, you know, comic book snob favorite, I think. Uh, Kevin and I certainly love it. Um, Did you Kevin, read this on Marvel Unlimited, or do you have a trade? I do not this? have a trade of it. I, or I think I used to, but I don't anymore. So I read it on Marvel Unlimited. The nice thing about the trade is it starts, at least the original trade, there's been you're like really rubbing my face in it. A bunch of versions of it is that it starts with a Stanley introduction. Um, and it's 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 uh, vintage enough Stanley where it seems like he's not phoning this intro in. And it's great. It's a really great read. He loves Marvels. He talks about like to him, it's almost like a love letter to the work he and Kirby and Ditko did. Yeah. And he says that in his entry, he references 
uh, Kirby and Ditko and a lot of the other artists. Like he lists everybody and there's, there's not, this is not the Stanley, I did everything. This is all about me. Yeah. This is like, oh, this is such a great thing that Kurt and Alex did. And, and like, and like, I think he was honored by how great it was in a way. And it just, it's really fun to read. He raves about all these artists first, not including Kirby and Ditko. He like lists like a bunch of the creators involved. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, if it seems like I skipped Jack Kirby, I didn't. Like I need to separate him from everyone else. Talks about how great Kirby was. Then talks about Ditko a little bit. Uh, and it's just, just like, I, I, it, it's one of those things where like, I think Stan would write an intro to anything you asked him to. Yeah. And I, but I weirdly think like he got this one. He's like, Oh good. I'm glad I get to write this intro. I mean, he's, he's the guy to write it. Right. I mean, yeah. like, um, you know, it's interesting because you're reminding me that Marvel's came out in 94. It started in 93. Yeah. So like, like you were saying, like, I think Marvel was kind of in a downtime here. Like the stories were kind of losing the, you know, the clones. This saga, might be going million, bankrupt Marvel. Yeah, like Marvel's going bankrupt. There's a million X books and the quality has kind of plummeted. They've kicked Claremont off that and it's the artists are in charge. Image well, is happening and like they, they put left. the artists, they put the artists in charge and then the artists left Marvel. And um, yeah, and they're, they're having financial problems. This is before they get bought by Toy Biz. This is the movies are not even a glimmer in the probably There's just a glimmer in people's eye. It's after like the boom of Spider-Man one and X-Men one that set all these sales records. So the collector's market sort of bottomed out of Marvel for a while here. So it's looking bad for Marvel. And then out comes this book that celebrates almost like a reminder. Hey, look at the great stuff that this company is made of. And they sort of aren't paying attention to recent at this point, recent past. Uh, it's like classic silver age marvel stuff mostly and also i think jack kirby has, is just it dies around this time um I, you know like within a year of this before or after so it's kind of like the yeah, end of that era. i had just i had just seen him this is yeah. shortly after i went to the convention so this he was not around much longer after that stan lee also stan lee himself personally was in kind of a downtime in his career it's like he's been kicked out of any working with the marvel books there isn't any development work happening that he can be a part of. He's he's not yet the beloved cameo machine that he would be. So then these two kids write a book that celebrates kids, what's good about like, it. Very old adults probably at this point already. Yeah, they're probably in their 30s. But, you know, compared to Stan and Jack, like the, the new kids in the block sort of show up and like make a book that celebrates what's good. Um, they get they get the guy who helped make it good to do the intro. It's almost like a shot in the arm for Marvel, the company, as a as an identity thing, you know. Yeah, and the, it's a, it's a call to action of like, no, this these properties are good. Let's make them good. Yeah, Marvel hadn't quite bottomed. I feel like Marvel had like this stretch where uh, all the artists were leaving. I don't actually. When did Image Comics start? Let's look that up real quick. I, mean, I think it had started by 93, but like maybe a year or two in, you know, I think it was, this is 92. So yeah. it just happened. Yeah. So, yeah. So all these great artists, McFarlane and Jim Lee and Eric Larson have all left. Uh, Sylvester, um, have all Leafield, of course, have all left Marvel to form their own company and sort of hollowed out this company that was like riding the wave of their popularity. Yeah. Uh, but we're, you know, a decade before Spider-Man, the movie right um and like in a few years marvel would 
cancel Avengers Fantastic Four um, and have Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld and Captain America and have those guys take over those titles. And also um, one more, uh, what was it? Hulk was in it, but he wasn't one of his titles. Maybe Thor? Anyway, they like did like basically the, the kind of the core characters just weren't selling. Yeah. And so like, oh, let's have Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld who left us take over these characters. And so for a year, they were like in a separate universe. And that's happening like in the uh, in the 97, roughly when the Thunderbolts comes out. We'll talk about that when we get to it, I guess. I mean, that's the stretch we're in of just Marvel sort of like trying anything to save their company. Yeah. And so I think this series kind of represents like a celebration of what had worked and maybe its success is kind of a sign that like, look, there's life left in these stories. Like, yeah, it was like a light at the end of the tunnel. I don't think it saved Marvel or, or righted the ship, but it was a glimmer of what was to come because what sort of helped started fixing Marvel was kind of going back to what worked for a little while, what they did was like more painted work was what they the lesson they took from this book. <laughs> they put out right. a lot of painted books that were sort of like a varying quality. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, a bunch of nostalgic stuff, some was good, some was bad, but um, it, it was the beginning of like, hey, there's a way through this <laughs> madness. Um, how, how should we how should we talk about this? Do you want to do you want to give a summary of what happens? Do you want to tell me why you think Marvel's worked? I don't. I mean, the art, I think, is why it worked. Okay. As much as Kurt, let's, let's start the there. season is about this art by Alex Ross. I, I don't, Alex Ross had probably done a few things. I didn't do any research into this, uh, uh, but this was his coming out party. And Alex Ross became like the cover artist for Marvel and DC, particularly for like classic character looks. Um, how did you, uh, how do you, how would you describe what's cool about an Alex Ross illustration? I mean, it definitely it's has almost, its own style. It's almost photorealistic. It's not quite though, like, but it is, it's like taking these characters and, and making them feel real. Uh, like in the same way that like John Byrne and Frank Miller made these characters look cool. Yeah. But they didn't look real, right? Like Frank right. Miller's Daredevil doesn't look anything like a human being. Right. And John Byrne's Fantastic Four looks cool, but it looks like a comic book. Yes. Like it, what he's drawing wouldn't necessarily look as good in real life. But what Alex Ross is drawing, if you, changed it to photographs um it would look very similar there's yeah. some uh, liberties being taken there he's not quite doing just photorealistic but it, but he's capturing what it would seem like if spider-man crawled over the window of the building you're in that's what it would look like it's a cost it's a guy wearing clothing it's not skin tight uh, yes you, but you it's can... also in your face and and, and shocking and and uh, kind of strange and astonishing it, it looks sort of um like george reeves superman era like kind of a stocky adam west build on these guys and like you say yeah the costumes are drawn like real clothes which in a way humanizes them and almost undercuts them because of course a costume and a real grown man would look insane but then the light is like renaissance painting shiny glorious yeah almost like touched by God, like, uh, and it ends up with this, you can't look away. I mean, like, you know, you see an Alex Ross drawing, you just stare at it. Like you get the lost Galactus, 
the Galactus sequence that happens in this book. And we'll kind of go, I think, real quickly over what happens in each issue. But like there's a Galactus sequence where he shows up and he's just a big dude. <laughs> right. It right. should look silly and weird. And there's a tiny bit of that in this. Yeah. But it's it, the angles and the way it's portrayed makes it look ominous and scary and terrifying and not just like, you look at the wonder there's a 30 foot dude out there. That's weird, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, like there's angles you could take where it would look silly. And he's just like, so that's what I mean. Like it's photorealistic, but then also like presented in a way that doesn't lose the majesty of it. It's still casting a spell in a major way. And um, whatever, whatever it is, whatever the alchemy is of an Alex Ross painting, people can't get enough. I still can't get enough. Yeah. You know, I'll be, I'll be browsing through Twitter and someone will just have an Alex Ross painting. And I almost always want to like retweet it. I'll stop and look at it. It's just really cool. Yeah. Uh, and what Kirk did for this story is I think he, told a story that is because it's from the street level, which was something he was probably already interested in. It uh, uh, amplified the the drawings in a way of like, yeah, these are drawings that sort of like look cool and real and like, as if you're part of this world. So let's tell a story where it's like putting you in the shoes of someone who's in this world. Okay. So Alex Ross's art, huge part of it. Now let's talk about Busick's story. Cause I think this, you know, so I reread this yesterday. Mm-hmm. I had read it at the time. I've read it a couple of times over the years, but it's been a little while. So when I reread it yesterday, I was like, man, the story is good. Like you definitely think of the art first, but then when I turn to the story, I'm like, the writing is good. The character of Phil Sheldon, the main character photographer is really good. How would you say, what is good about this story? Well, it's interesting because it's it doesn't feel to me like, maybe you disagree on this. It doesn't feel to me like, oh, this is a four chapter story. It feels like it's four short stories about uh, Phil Sheldon. I agree. I agree. Uh, it, it is not like Batman year one, which is a simple story about Batman getting his, uh, figuring out how to be Batman. This is a story about like, what was Phil Sheldon doing in this era? What was he doing in this era? So each one is like its own little story, which makes it really cool to read. It's complete story issues. I, I agree with that. Um, I, I guess, it, go ahead. but it, it, yeah, it's basically like, what was the tone and and vibe of the Marvel universe during each of these sequence of events? Yes, um, you're right. Each issue is, is self-contained in a nice way. There are some themes that cross over all of the issues, and it is sort of like, what does the public, what is the relationship between the public and these superheroes? Uh, what does it say about the identity of America? Um, you know, uh, what does it say about our fear or hope? And Phil himself goes through a lot of different feelings about that. And we see a lot of different examples. The way people feel about the human torch is different than how they feel about Captain America is different than how they feel about the X-Men is different than how they feel about, um, uh, the Avengers. So it's, uh, or the fantastic four, even, even more so. So like, it's it's a lot about like, are you scared of these heroes? Do you love them? Do you appreciate them? And you know, it's kind of a sad ending in a way. Um, not a, it's not a sad ending. It heroes are not triumphant in the end. I don't feel like Phil, Phil kind of ends a little bit soured on heroes by the end of the story, by the end of the four issues. And I, I didn't expect that. I had forgotten that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it, it was uh, a natural ending, and it felt authentic and good. But I, it felt like true. But I was like, "Huh, it's not really a sales pitch for the for the for the glory of these heroes," according to Phil. Well, it ends up with him loving his family. 
that's what that's why it's calling it a sad ending is wrong. It's a happy ending yeah. for Phil, but like it's it's kind of brave in a way to have this comic book which itself is a celebration of the Marvel universe, but the central character by the end is like enough of these heroes. I don't know. Yeah. So uh, I thought it interesting. I thought it was just kind of like a smart writer's realization of nope, that's where this character goes. I mean, Phil is a photojournalist who shoots superheroes. So his career is basically it, it in a way, it's like a celebrity photographer, right? Like right, he's right. going around shooting Tom Cruise and Robert Redford yeah. and stuff. And at some point goes, eh, I'm tired of celebrities. Yeah. Is what it feels like a little bit. I mean, it's different than that, where like celebrities have an even bigger impact on our world. Yes. Um, and there's a bit of that in there. Um, we, maybe it would help to talk about just like, let's talk just about that first issue. Okay. Yeah. And then, uh, um, so the first issue, we're not going like, to go page by page or anything, but just, yeah. Cut to three hours later. Um, <laughs> panel two. <laughs> <laughs> so the first issue basically tracks what happens in the Marvel universe in the forties and fifties, mostly the forties. And it's the arrival of the human torch, the original human torch, the Submariner and Captain America. And the original Human Torch is basically regarded by comic book historians as the beginning of Marvel Comics. Right. He was in Marvel Comics 1, right? Yeah. The, the title of the comic was Marvel Comics. Even though the company, I think, was called Timely. Yeah. Uh, and then later it would be called Atlas. And only at the Fantastic Four time did it start being called Marvel Comics. But yeah. people kind of retroactively say, you know, the company that we know as Marvel Comics began with the arrival of the original Human Torch. And so that's where Marvel's begins. Mm -hmm. And it kind of introduces a world where the emergence of the original Human Torch is the emergence of the superhero. Yeah. And the Human Torch initially was because of that's what comics were at the time was more of a monster comic. It was like he was a threat. He was a villain. Yeah, that we had to like watch out for. He wasn't heroic in a lot of ways. Yeah, he was a scary science fiction phenomenon. And so was Namor. Like they both quickly turned into heroes, um, but like they kind of started off as like almost villains. Yeah, the the original Human Torch is like a Phineas Horton, a scientist, creates an artificial android man who, anytime he touches oxygen, initially this was true, bursts into flame, right? And, yeah. uh, and then the Submariner is just like the king of Atlantis who shows up and wants to take over humanity and is a bad guy. Yeah. Um, and so this story is the discovering that from the point of view of Phil Sheldon, photojournalist, who initially thinks he wants to go to, the, to Europe to become sort of famous being a war journalist, but then realizes that if superheroes are here, that's actually more exciting than a world war. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting too, and I haven't read a lot of these comics, but like comics back then did not have like an issue to issue continuity so much. It wasn't like they weren't following up on stories from previous issues. It was like, here's another adventure involving this character. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there's some disjointedness probably to those stories that Kurt is weaving together. And because of that also like one issue, Namor might be a villain. And the next issue, he's a hero again. And some of that, there's nods to that where like uh, that, like I would say the climax of this issue is a, uh, the first sort of superhero crossover where Namor fights the Human Torch. Namor right. is like uh, gone mad again. He hates humanity again, and the Human Torch has to stop him. And so there's this big battle. Uh, but like, they both have become good guys by like their next issue. So it's and it's sort of just like all is forgiven, <laughs> and that's sort of nodded to in the captions. It's very fun and true to what yeah. comics were at the time. And what Busick does, and this is a really 
a thing he does well and that other writers would do well is like, okay, initially this was just an accident of publishing. There wasn't continuity from issue to issue because that wasn't people's relationship to comic books. And therefore, Namor can be a hero this issue, a villain the next issue. But what if that's a story? What if that what if that is like people don't know whether to trust him or they need him? And so that is like, like you say, it's used and, and we see Phil not sure what to think about these people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Kurt's taking just like an accident of reality and kind of retroactively making it a narrative in a pretty good way. Yeah. Um, it's also Phil's theme of career versus family, which is kind of the overarching arc he has over the four issues. He's got a fiance named Doris and he basically blows her off for work and is not even sure he can marry her because um, yeah, of in his this dangerous issue, work. Well, in this issue, he's so scared of these superheroes. He treats it almost like, you know, the disaster. He's like, I can't marry someone until this is sorted out. Yeah, like this is a hurricane that's going to pass. Um, and then only when he realizes like, no, this is just the new normal. And I can't let my life pass me by. Does he repropose or reconnect with Doris? So I guess the arc in this issue is him going from being scared of these heroes as a problem that needs to be dealt with to like learning to live with them, being comfortable with them and not being scared anymore. Right. The yeah, climactic the climactic thing is he goes up on a building and just faces a tidal wave that Namor is sending and he's not scared of it. Yes. Yeah. And uh, you also see a young J. Jonah Jameson who plays throughout all four issues. That's right. Kind of fun. Uh, well, an interesting thing about that is it's talked about in the back matter of the trade paperback that Will doesn't have. Wow. Ken, is that uh, he's not named as J. Jonah Jameson in this issue because the editors of uh, uh, that worked at Marvel at the time, and uh, I think in particularly the Spider-Man editors, did not like the idea that it was kind of making Jonah alive so long, making Jonah that old. Oh, interesting. And so they're like, it can't be Jonah. And so what happens in this issue is he's never named Jonah. And then when uh-huh. Jonah does show up, Jonah refers to the fact that he has a history with uh, um, Phil, Phil Sheldon. But it's it's not overtly said that the, I was the guy in that previous issue. He clearly is. Yeah, yeah. He one hundred percent is. But he just like Kurt couldn't quite put a dot on that oh, without so like without it getting rejected. So he's like, well, I still want this character in there. So it'll just be a Jonah like guy, and then Jonah, and then they're and for Kurt they're the same guy, and for me they're the same guy, and for everybody who reads this comic they're the same guy. But if if push came to shove and someone really had a problem with it, you would say, well, they're they're not necessarily the same guy. Interesting. I didn't didn't realize that. Yeah. So funny. Um, how silly. Uh, so the the appeal of this issue, like Kevin says, is the art, like Alex Ross's magnificent drawing of the horrific human torch kind of ball of flame. And then yeah. like Namor's kind of imposing threat uh, and then like kind of redrawing some sort of images that you as a comic book fan, you might have glimpsed at here or there of like the torch fighting name or on top of the Brooklyn bridge or on top of the statue of Liberty. You know, you might've seen that in some like comic book guide snapshot of the cover and here it's being drawn in this majestic Renaissance painting form. Yeah. Um, and what's also fun is that Kurt and, and it's almost like reading a league of extraordinary gentlemen where it's like, anytime there's a reference to something, you're like, I'm sure that's in a comic somewhere. That's from something. Kurt's not making that up. That is right. Right. When, when researched, you hear some bystanders say, Hey, I don't trust the torch. And someone says, I don't know. He stopped those like gun runners in my garage. And it's like, Oh, I guess that was an issue of the old human torch or something. Yeah. My car got melted. 
it's like that must have happened. There's a panel where that must have happened. <laughs> yeah. Um, because um, otherwise it wouldn't be there. Kurt like had fun with like using the real history. Why make it up when he could use a real thing? But by the end of this issue, Phil Sheldon is solidly established. He's going to devote his career to taking pictures of these guys. Yeah, but not letting it stop his life. He is. He's also gets uh, engaged. He's, he's yeah. He's back with Doris, and in love again. And then the next issue is sort of the dawn of the Silver Age of Marvel Comics, the Stan Lee, Kirby, Ditko era. It kind of begins with uh, Captain America being back on the scene. So like around Avengers, what's that, three? Uh, yeah, I think uh, Avengers three. Yeah. So all the big characters are out there, right? Spider-Man exists. The Fantastic Four exists. The main Avengers all exist. But it's all still very new. This issue is the one I remember most from Marvel's, like, uh, I remembered the most panels and the, and the most of the story. Um, but it's like, yeah, the street level view of sixties Marvel. Yeah. Um, cause when we start issue two, the FF Spider-Man, they have all arrived already. Yeah. That's, that's what I said. Yep. Oh, okay. Right. Uh, I, I was, full, I was expecting to see that, but we, we, we don't see that. Um, and it's a lot about the X-Men versus the rest of the heroes, right? Yeah. Um, cause this is a, uh, um, is this the engagement of the FF happens in this issue? Not the yeah. wedding? Or does yeah. the wedding happen too? Uh, I'll look. The engagement definitely happens. Galactus is issue three. The wedding might happen this issue. I'm looking. Um, uh, what, what stands out about this issue to you? Uh, we've, also, we've got the, the mutant girl in the basement. I mean, in reading it. Uh, the marriage happens too. Um, in reading it, it's, it's the X-Men really stand out to me. Um, yeah. When I think back to it, it's the images of giant man standing over and Captain America leaping over the cars. Um, but w- w- the really cool moment is when you first see the X-Men, how they're drawn scary. Yeah. And at this time, the X-Men comics did not, were not steeped in the um, mutant as persecution as much as they would be later on. In the sixties, you mean? Yes. Yeah. They still so, were the, the X-Men were feared and hated, but it wasn't as big. A, I don't think it was this big a deal back. Then. Right. They were presented as the strangest heroes, but not like the feared persecuted heroes. Yeah. But that is such a part of their DNA that it, it does feel right to be true there. And there definitely is an aspect to it. Sentinels uh, storyline is part of this, but it, it, it they were feared for an issue or two. They weren't like that wasn't like such a part of their DNA. So their costumes are still like bright and happy and cheery. Like they're not easy to like make them look scary. Yeah. Uh, and their first appearance in this, which is like lit by uh, Cyclops's visor, they look terrifying. And like you get why you'd run around the corner and see them and be like, yikes, even though a moment earlier you saw the thing and you're like, hey, he's okay. Yeah, exactly. So like Busick and Ross have kind of, they make that a story of how like, well, the world loves the Fantastic Four and they hate the X-Men. And, and our man, uh, Phil, goes through some struggles with that. He's scared of the X-Men, but then he discovered that his daughters have taken in a mutant girl in the basement and they're hiding her because she's she, she's been abandoned by her family. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, really moving and sad, it, right? And it changes his opinion of what mutants are. He kind of sees mutants as uh, uh, people and not as things. Um. um yeah, it's really cool. It's also like this is capturing a lot of comics that I, I at this point had read not much of. I'd read a bunch of Spider-Man of this era and a little bit of Fantastic Four, but I hadn't read much else. So a lot of what's being shown here when I read this for the first time 
this is my introduction to like the idea of like, oh, Captain America is back and um, all this sort of stuff. Yeah. The engagement of the FF. I had not read that yet. It's That's one of my favorite panels, by the way, because you see the thing holding back the throngs of people. Yeah. Which in the original Kirby story, like it's a, it's like a wave of people. The thing is holding back. It's a little silly almost. Kirby's having, it's almost like a cartoonish moment. Yeah. And Alex Ross makes it look believable. Yeah. But the thing is holding back this crowd of uh, photographers that want to take a photograph of his best friends. Uh, it's a very fun thing that he does. Like the, a lot of these panels are panels from Kirby or whoever uh, uh, comic books just kind of like re contextualized by Alex Ross. And it's really fun. Um, one of the famous moments in this issue, I th- or one of the standout moments, is uh, the wedding of Reed and Sue. Yeah. Um, which Alex Ross draws Reed and Sue kissing at the end of their ceremony and the church filled with like all the heroes of the Marvel Universe in attendance. But the annual, annual two? I think so. Where's uh, it one? No, it can't be one. I think one was Submariner. Two's the wedding and three is Doom's history. That's right. Yeah. So. Fantastic Four Annual 2 is the wedding of Reed and Sue, but like there's a huge invasion of villains and then the Watcher at the end of it snaps his fingers and makes it all go away. Yeah. Right? And so it's kind of erased from continuity in that issue. So in this, Marvel's, Phil attends the wedding is like, oh, I thought something would have gone wrong here, but it all went off without a hitch. Yeah, which is only, only, you only get if you've read that comic. Although I think it is said in such a way that if you're like, oh, obviously that's not what happened. It's being presented as so ironic and like sarcastic that I think even if you haven't, you you know, like, oh, something went down that this guy doesn't know about or something. That may be true, but I'm positive when I first read this that I did not catch that. Oh, okay. Um, I'm sure I, think- I read this and was just like, oh, I guess this is the wedding and like. That's yeah, that's it. Like, like it was a panel in the comic, and that's fine. Like, there was probably a story and an adventure, but like the wedding went on, did go off without a hitch. I'm sure I assumed. Also, in that panel, you see somebody whispering to Nick Fury, which is uh, in the comic itself, is them saying there's two guys trying to get into this wedding, and it's Dan and Jack. Oh, it's Uh, so funny. So, they're not in the wedding, and they're not attending the wedding in this painting, which you know, there are like the Beatles are drawn in and stuff like that. Um, there's lots of like Easter egg drawings throughout these four issues. Yeah. Um, but Stan and Jack, who would be perfect Easter eggs in this, are not there because they were not allowed into the wedding. And that is in the comic, and you can't have them there. Yeah, yeah. So they're they're just outside the door wearing their top hats and canes. I think that's what they were drawn as in the, in yeah. the FF annual. Um, yeah, seeing Alex Ross's drawings of all these figures is really fun. Um this is kind of a this kind of has a sad ending uh uh with the mar- with the little mutant girl that Phil yes. Sheldon's family was sheltering runs away because she doesn't want to bring trouble to them and they never find out what happens to her. Right, yeah. And she's not a real Marvel character. She's inspired by like an EC Comics horror character according to the back of this. Um so we never know what happens to her. Yeah, so I had forgotten about that too that like Marvel's as a story is not just like a nostalgia fest. It's like, it's, it's got some darkness in it. And I think that's yeah. part of what makes it sort of memorable. But that's also what part of what makes Marvel's great, right? Like what set Marvel apart from DC was that Spider-Man is hated, that the yeah. mutants have trouble being accepted where like everyone loves this flash day. 
Superman is everyone's hero. Even Batman at this time was like helping out the police like during the day. Like, I'll solve this crime for you. Right, right. Uh, so like there wasn't any of that happening at DC at this time. So uh, uh, not at the time Marvels came up, but the time Marvels is about. So it is what is beautiful about Marvels. Um, let's go on to issue three. Yeah. So issue this, three is like my favorite of this issue. It's, it's just because it's uh, terrific. Yeah. Yeah. It um, covers basically the coming of Galactus, uh, which is like the end of the world from anyone's perspective in New York City. A guy shows up to destroy the planet, and it's then the FF struggle to defeat him, and it looks like they're not going to defeat him. And it's just like, oh, this is this could be it. Yeah, and the story f- about Phil in this issue is the beginning of it. He's had it with heroes, and he wishes they would go away. But then the arrival of Galactus and the FF saving the world makes him realize, no, we need them. He's also like not home, right? He's not going, he's work, he's a workaholic at this point. Yeah. His like wife calls him during the Galactus thing. And he's like, I'll talk to her later. Which is like, this might be the end. You might never speak to her again. Yeah. He's shown as kind of a jerk to his family in this issue. Yeah. Um, uh, Kevin, he, go- realizes that, he realizes at some point that it's like, oh, if the world is going to end, I should be with them. I, I want to be with them. Uh, Kevin, if, if Galactus showed up, would you would you call home or would you get right to, you know, get on, get get on with me and do a, an emergency podcast as it was happening? Um, I mean, uh, it's got to be podcasted. So it's I think my wife would understand. Yeah. <laughs> People like, would need know. our takes. Yeah. Um. I mean, I'm always home. I work from home, so I don't go anywhere. <laughs> I'll be upstairs is what I would say. Um, yeah, I mean, it's fantastic. Also, again, it's one of these things where at this point, I knew of the Galactus story, but I had not read it. I did not have a reprint of it. The Essentials had not come out yet, I don't believe. So I, I might think, not have read it either. So to me, like, I was re- I read this before I actually read the Kirby issues of Galactus and after, and it's great in both angles. Like, it is a great view of it. And then when I reread it again, I'm like, oh, every single panel here is from the Kirby comic, and it's so cool to see it. Yeah, it's so interesting. And there's and and given how many things were covered in the first two issues, there's a ton of real estate on just like those three Galactus issues from FF. Yeah, in here, it's also um, some parts of uh, are better in here. The, the flames and the rock sky. So, so when Galactus comes, the first thing that happens in the issues is that the Watcher covers the sky in flames and covers the sky in rocks to sort of Hide. confuse the surfer so that he doesn't notice Earth. Yeah, it's, he's trying to, like, get Galactus and the surfer to not come to Earth. Yeah, but, like, from our perspective uh, in the city of New York, all of a sudden the sky is on fire. Yeah. Which is terrifying. And it is yeah. presented as terrifying in the comic, but it's even more terrifying in this. Yeah, since it's such a street level book, uh, and then when the sky is covered with rocks, it is just like, what is going on? And like reading this for the first time, I was like, I assumed Galactus was doing this. Yeah, it seems like oh, Galactus. It wasn't like this. Didn't read like oh, this is to protect us. It seemed like this is part of Galactus's deal. Yeah, it's part of Doom coming, not Doctor Doom, but you know uh, the concept Lower, of lowercase Doom, doom? lowercase yeah. Doom arriving, not Von um, Doom. And man, it's it's fun. It's fun reading this. Uh, and it is terrifying. Galactus both looks kind of not quite silly, but sort of like awkward and 
baffling and scary and just like it the effect is what's going on here like this is bad news and it amplifies the beats from that story like in that story the fantastic four like fight galactus can't do anything and sort of regroup for a bit and then come back and fight him again sort of and then like it takes like three attempts for them to really deal with this and reading this like the the beats between their fights it just feels like uh, they lost yeah like where's the ff they're gone there's no avengers coming what this is the end of it uh, and it it amplifies those moments of like, it. I don't know, when you read the Kirby issues, you're just sort of like, well, this is where they're regrouping. But in this, it just feels like, oh man, this feels dire. And uh, the end of the issue for Phil is he realizes family is important. Like he can't, yeah. he cannot give them up for uh, heroes, but he also is mad at people who complain about the heroes at the end right the people who are like criticizing and poking holes in the heroes he's like you, you we need them like are you crazy yeah i mean marvel comics is especially at this time uh, as part of their nature were very up and down like if spider-man had a good issue where everything worked out the next issue everything would go bad for him yeah like he if, if the city started to accept him that was going to be ripped away from him the same thing for like the avengers would be like Oh, everyone loves the Avengers. Like the fir- first batch of Avengers stories, they were just heroes. And yeah. then it became that like they kind of started playing into that Marvel uh, stuff of like, oh, the Avengers are villains. The Avengers are heroes. The Avengers are scary. The Avengers are brave. Like it's a roller coaster of emotions. Uh, but because of that, they're not always beloved. And Phil, who's seen them be great and like sort of acknowledging that, like, how can you still hate them? <laughs> Yeah. How can you be afraid of the thing after yeah. what he just did? Right. Uh, and there's like the one panel nod to this man, this monster in here, which is great. Oh, there is? Yeah. Uh, it talks about afterwards the thing is seen wandering the streets because that's him uh, uh, oh. leaving because he feels because um, this man, this monster shortly after Galactus and he kind of wanders off. Yeah, that's right. That's and there's right. a panel the that's right from the comic. Yeah. Oh, so cool. Um. The, should we move to the last issue? Yeah. Uh, and this is weirdly like a smaller story. Yeah. Um, so this is about the death of Gwen Stacy, which is a smaller story. It is not the end of the world. It is the end of one person. Right. Um, but it's it's huge in the mythology of the Marvel Universe. Yeah. Um, it's huge in Phil Sheldon's life because he yeah, becomes and, friends with her. And you'd have to do that, I think, because otherwise, why would Phil be invested in the story enough to give it the real estate, the comics, the uh, the real estate that equals its importance, right? Yeah. If he doesn't know Gwen Stacy, why would he be there? So like to get him involved in this, like you have to get him involved in Gwen Stacy. It's a little bit of a love letter to Gwen Stacy. And it's, it, this sounds like a knock on the comic. This is maybe my only hot take where it's like, I don't have that love for Gwen Stacy. I think she's a character and she existed. And like the most interesting thing about her is that she died. Right. Um, right. Uh, uh, and I think people who are reading comics at that time still love Gwen Stacy and still miss Gwen Stacy's character. But to me, I'm sort of like, I don't miss her at all. Yeah. Um, and, and I think like Alex Ross and Kurt are Gwen boosters and it, it reads like, Oh, she's perfect and wonderful and so glorious. And so there's a part of that where I'm like, eh, was she all that great? She was yeah. also like hated Peter Parker, every other issue and, and right, hated right. Spider-Man occasionally. And like, I, I think you're right. Was written, she was written as a 
problem, right? She was a problem for Peter Parker to solve was how she was written. That's not her fault. It's a, it's yeah. a not a non fictional character, but uh, uh, she she's sanctified. She's treated here as yeah. She's treated here like a, a, a hallowed angel almost because of the tragic death. Retroactively, yes, people got sort of put her on a pedestal in a way when really she was one of many uh, love interest characters of Marvel at the time, which meant she was underwritten, <laughs> which is yeah. like true of a lot of the uh, love interests at that time. But uh, this cover man um, with the close up on Spidey's eye and in the reflection of his eye, we see goblin holding Gwen. It's really terrifying. It's interesting how Alex Ross's ability to take something that was cartoonish and comic booky and give it, real emotional depth like he makes these panels work goblin looks scary yeah on uh, the goblin looks very before. scary throughout this comic in fact um the, the basic arc of the story is phil sheldon wants to investigate the death of captain stacy gwen's father because he thinks that it's not spider-man's fault he becomes friends with gwen stacy her love of heroes her hope in the world renews his hope for the world and he starts to look kindly on superheroes and everything and then when she's murdered he's shattered yeah and he walks away from his career and i guess that's just what it is like there's this moment where it's a really beautifully drawn sequence where uh atlantis is invading new york for what i assume is the fifth or sixth time yeah it seems like a regular thing an annual event um and gwen stacy and he he are walking around it and she's like oh it's beautiful isn't it and there's a little manic pixie girlness to her yeah. there where she's almost serving like how she affects phil more than who she is but it is like really beautifully drawn and really cool and a great way to view this atlantis invasion yeah and um manic pixie dream girl trope aside it is interesting to see gwen stacy somebody that we know as being drawn from john ramita senior mostly uh, and we see her in the hands of Alex Ross and he kind of like bumps her up to like angel status. Yeah. A little less buxomy, which is good, but yes, but, 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 but more like innocent and angelic, I would say. Yeah. And she, and she uh, renews faith for Phil here. Um, yeah. And it's, it is lovely. Like it's, it's affecting to read this story. I mean, and we get to see the goblin taking her from her house. And that's one of the scariest panels where you see the goblin climbing out the window with her under his arms. Uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's terrifying. It's a very scary panel. And, and Phil sees that because he's come to see Gwen about something. Uh, and then we see Spider-Man in action. It's really interesting to see Alex Ross drive Spider-Man because in a way, Spidey is, I would think, a bad subject for Alex Ross. Because yeah. he's kind of like, you know, Spidey's whole thing visually is these crazy contortions and like acrobatics and Ditko especially really hit that balance nicely of realistic, but, but also sort of, yeah, not pushing the, pushing the realm of what's realistic for a human body to do. And Alex will not draw something that is not realistic. And so Spidey almost looks a little still and awkward in these drawings yeah. And skin tight costumes aren't the best. Like the Fantastic Four costumes that are more like uniforms look good under Alex Ross's pen, but a skin tight costume that is meant to be literally like a second skin starts to look a little weird. Like, hey, why are you wearing that? Yeah, it looks like a Halloween costume in a way that is compelling, but it yes. does undercut the her heroic nature. 
but here, yeah, we see, we see a Spidey fight against the goblin and we see the death of Gwen Stacy and it's uh, horrifying. And Spider-Man does not talk in this comic, which uh, according to the back matter is because Alex Ross still thinks of Spider-Man from his uh, electric company days. <laughs> when he doesn't That's, say anything. Yeah, when he didn't say anything. That isn't, I'm not making that up. That is what's written in the back of the comic. So there's no quips and, and, and taunts from Spider-Man. I mean, it's also he's never near Phil, so you wouldn't hear anything anyway. So it's presented as what Phil uh, would hear. Yeah, it feels true to nature and, and what it is. But um, yeah, we you don't hear Spider-Man talk. So it's, a, it's missing a little bit of what we love about Spider-Man, but it is true to this story too. Um, the death of Gwen Stacy breaks Phil's heart and he's had it with the heroes. And so he hangs up the career. And so the end of Marvels is him asking a quote, normal everyday boy, paper boy to take his photo with his wife. Yeah. Oh no, sorry. Uh, to be to be in a photo with him and his wife and his daughter takes. Oh no, his, right. his assistant takes it. His assistant takes the photo. Right. Do you know who that boy was? I didn't until I looked it up on Wikipedia. I guess it's Ghost Rider. He's the second Ghost Rider. Yeah. <laughs> That's I would I did not know that. Yeah, Daniel Ketch, the second Ghost Rider, not Johnny Blaze, the first yeah. one. Um, but he was the, Ghost Rider at that time in the nineties. He was the Ghost Rider. Okay, so it's an Easter egg to the 90s Ghost Rider. And yeah, that's and how it ends. I think, I think it is the only like modern 90s character that's in here at all. Oh, interesting. Um, I guess Johnny Blaze as a name was just too silly to have in there or something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe um, it wouldn't be the right age, right? Johnny Blaze probably already existed. Yeah, it was probably just about to exist. So you'd have to have like a 20 year old. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, you could have had like Robbie Baldwin or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, though I don't know if Speedball existed yet then. Uh, Speedball might have existed. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, it's a really fun four issues. There's also an epilogue that I've asked Will to read numerous times. He still has not read at this point. Correct, Will? Um, no, I read Marvel's issue zero. Okay. There's an epilogue that was written that's uh, basic, I think, an even better ending to the story that takes place um, – in like X-Men 102 or something, whenever they're in, in New York at um, Rockefeller Plaza. Okay. And it is, uh, Phil is like there with his daughters just hanging out when like the Sentinels attack the X-Men and right. they see I... Storm and Banshee and Cyclops in action. And his daughters are like all caught up in it and they're taking photos. And he's like, oh, now they're sort of where I was as a kid. Uh, okay, interesting. And he sort of watches them being him. And it's really cool. And it's also like, to me, like, oh, we saw Phil at the birth of the Marvel Universe, and now he sees his kids at, like, the birth of the the 80s Marvel Universe. Oh, okay, it's yeah. It's a very cool little epilogue. I refuse to read it. I mean, uh, I've given up trying to get you to at this point. <laughs> uh, uh, is, yeah. it, is it not on Marvel Unlimited? It's 100% of Marvel Unlimited. When we first got Marvel Unlimited, I was like, you should read this. Oh, I don't remember that. Um, um, it's not here when I searched for Marvel's. Um, uh, maybe it's not on there anymore. Marvel's epilogue. Nope. Uh, I'll, I'll look for it. I, after I read it on there when when I had. I don't. I don't currently have Marvel's Unlimited, but the year I had it, that's where I read it. So. Um. So maybe it's not on there anymore. Oh no, it is. You have to search for it separately. Um. I mean, also, it, it, show it came out it. in 2019. Yeah, it came out very. It came out as part of like the, uh, whatever 20. 
2019 or whatever anniversary an anniversary version of the marvels came out and it's in the the most recent 2025th i guess yeah the most recent collection of it includes that it also includes tons of other stuff like they did like an annotated marvels which is like deep deep notes from kurt i don't have this version of it but it's uh, there's like a huge hardcover volume that has just tons and tons of extra stuff and marvels sort of became that right marvels didn't have a lot of evergreen stories that didn't feel like chapters nine through 12 of the never-ending story of spider-man like any collection even craven's last taunt has a little bit of that right where it's what's going on in spider-man at this time is also still true in that comic yeah uh, he's a newlywed to mary jane and like uh he's wearing the black costume not the red and blue costume where this is evergreen this feels like you could hand this to somebody now or 10 years 10 years after that it'll still read the same yeah um well i was really thrilled to read it it held up for me like it was really exciting to reread it and i can understand what a smash it was yeah i mean and it, alex ross became a huge hit he went on to do kingdom come for dc which was also a big hit and for a while kingdom come i think was held up as like the better thing but i feel like marvels has outlasted it i've always felt like marvels is a better story overall Kingdom Come is cool in its own way. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, and then uh, Alex Ross's friendship with Kurt continues. He does covers for Astro City and helps create characters for that. He does a lot of covers for comics in general. He did all the covers for Immortal Hulk. So he's just like still out there, still working, still doing great stuff. And he's doing a Fantastic Four series pretty soon. Um, I think he's Alex writing Ross. and drawing. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And it will be really great to read. Um, um, he's also a great costume designer. Um, he's redesigned some costumes here and there for Marvel. Uh, he always does it with like a look towards nostalgia, but um, he's just great. And he, I mean, he's somebody who thinks about like how this would really look and hold together. And um, he's great. Alex Ross is fantastic. Um, Kevin, I think we've done it. I think we've done a good coverage of this Marvel's story. Yeah. Um, as I said, next episode, we're going to talk about Thunderbolts. We might talk about Thunderbolts issue one in depth and then very briefly kind of just talk in general about the Thunderbolts after that. Uh, Kurt's run on that was about three years. Um, okay, so everybody read Thunderbolts number one to prep for next uh, episode. Yeah. So let's do a couple of emails. We don't have time to do full mailbags episodes right now because we want to stay focused on Kurt Busick. But we're going to go over a couple emails right now. If you want to email us, screwitcomics at Gmail. We also have a Twitter account, screwitcomics, and an Instagram account, screwitcomics, that I really recommend you follow. There's great stuff on our Instagram, screwitcomics. But uh, yeah, let's get some email, Kevin. What's in the mailbags? Uh, okay, so we're going to start with, we've got a bunch. I need to go through and clean this up well uh, for uh, a later episode. But here's one from Keith Ellis that I think is interesting. Uh he sent us way back at the beginning of March. Keith says, hello, Heinz bros. Uh, I'm really enjoying the episodes of the podcast where you review The Dark Knight Returns. Uh, I'm just wondering, there was a one-shot prestige format book that came out in the early 1990s from DC called World's Funniest, written by Evan Dorkin and illustrated by a murderer's row of great artists. I'm mentioning it because there was a one-page sequence that was drawn by Frank Miller, which is a perfect, hilarious parody of The Dark Knight Returns. Uh, version of Batman featuring Batmite that I think both of you would really love. 
You may have heard of Dorkin for his black and white masterpiece series, Milk and Cheese, or his hilarious humor anthology, Dork. Uh, also, I'd like to offer my two cents in your question of what was the next important milestone of After the Dark Knight um, with the superhero genre. Image Comics was an excellent choice, even given its general lack of substantive quality writing-wise. I would offer up one more, the Miller-Ellis era of Wildstorm Comics, with the authority being perhaps the best of the bunch and Planetary being a close second. Uh, and finally, I wanted to give a couple of less mainstream ideas for possible new upcoming seasons. Uh, Miracle Man slash Marvel Man, Flaming mm -hmm. Carrot, Martial Law, Top Ten, The Serial Killings, and Acme no Novelty Library. Ooh. Um, so a lot of good recommendations there. Um uh, I've read that world's funniest. I don't remember it that well, but it was a thing where they do lots of parodies and in most cases got like the artist you'd want drawing that parody. Oh, interesting. So like Frank Miller doing the, the um, dark Knight returns, but it would be like whatever other ones happened and there'd be like, Oh yeah. If you'd got an artist, this is the guy you'd, you'd want drawing it. It was kind of like a perfect storm of just like these guys still being interested enough in mainstream comics to be willing to do it uh for like a one or two page story it's definitely worth looking up if it's still available to people um and yeah i mean obviously we've figured out the the third comic is mouse but obviously yeah. those things he mentions are also big impactful moments in comics history yeah thank you nice email um here's one from uh, where is it uh here's a silly one let's do this one real quick this is from uh dan wars he's writing to our sub podcast will the uh screw it we're just gonna talk about war games <laughs> right um after reading the buzz and the numerous war games facebook groups and message boards i belong to i decided <laughs> to check out your show I'm not a comic book fan per se, but I do occasionally check in on the misadventures of Hoggar, the horrible Beetle Bailey and the family circus in my local newspaper. Okay. Uh, despite this, I enjoy your program tremendously. Uh, we all know that the breakout star of war games is the character of Malvin, a Mr. Yep. Potato Head, portrayed by leading man Eddie Deason. Right. I'm sure Will is familiar with his work in the 1978 Robert Zemeckis directed Beetlemania film, I Want to Hold Your Hand. Is this yep. true, Will? This is true, yeah. All right. My question is, if you were to cast Mr. Deason in a role in one of these superhero movies or TV programs that are popular right now, which character would he play? Please reply. <laughs> I mean, Eddie Deason, Malvin in War Games, what would he, I mean, he's sort of like the, in the early 80s, it'd be your classic nerd kind of, like nervous wreck, mm -hmm. you know, like a the sort of type that McLovin would play in sort of super bad and stuff. Sure. Uh, um, so he'd have to be somebody like that. I am um, Donald Blake, Thor. Yeah, I really go the other way on Thor. I would get I would get uh, Hemsworth out of there and have Eddie Deason be Thor. So you would cast, would it be him playing both parts or him just playing Donald Blake? The Donald Blake, like he turns into Hemsworth. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's great. Get secret Actually, nah, back. He's both parts. Okay. Oh, geez. Boy, the, the planet, the, you know, Hulk's in the thing. I got to save him. You know, it'd be real fun. I don't remember him from War Games. Who was he in War Games? Um, uh, Matthew Broderick discovers the uh, 
what is he is the pet what is um norad but he thinks it's a video game company wants to hack in oh he can't figure it away too yeah so he goes to visit his two professional friends and uh there's the heavy set guy sitting in a chair is like i always leave a back door so just find out about this guy's personal life you see what his back door is and then eddie deason is the guy's like you give eddie you give away all our best secrets it's like mr potato head it's not a secret everybody knows it so wait it's not even the main guy in that scene it's the second guy it's the second guy all yeah. right he's the breakout star was the mm-hmm. second guy in one scene of war games and this scene was not filmed by John Badham, the dire- who ended up being the director. This was one of the few scenes that uh, Martin Brest filmed before he was fired as the director. So this is a Beverly Hills cop, scent of a woman director, directed scene. Mm. And it's a really good one. It is a good scene. I remember that scene. Now that you've described it, I do remember that. It's, yeah. Uh, important. Like the whole hacking plot for like the first third of that movie is tremendous. It's really fun. Yeah. This has been um, screwed. We're just going to talk about war games. Yeah, right now, back to comic books. Uh, Brian Stratton emails us. Hey, Milksops, I've been reading through the Dead Man Omnibus in the wake of Neil Adams' passing, and it suddenly hit me that a Dead Man video game would be absolutely amazing, like a Grand Theft Auto where you could body jack almost every NPC in the game. Uh, I know Will is a huge gamer, so here's something for you to kick around for a few minutes. What comic book-based video game that doesn't exist would you most want to play? Spider-Man scratched my itch so thoroughly that it's hard to imagine another one. I mean, a really good X-Men game from like Claremont Byrne era X-Men would be fantastic. Um, You know, that would be really compelling. Although actually I take it back because when you switch, you know, the Avengers game taught me that if there's too many heroes and powers, it's sort of like, it's kind of too much to keep track of. It's better to have one character that you can kind of master. So what's that I, character? Yeah, I will say, um, I don't know. Who's like a really fun power to have? You know, I, I playing the Avengers game. I wish it was just Ms. Marvel. I wish it was just a polymorphing Ms. Marvel. That would be really fun. I think it was undercut by switching to Iron Man and Hulk. And actually, each of those guys were great. Like, but. I just wanted one. And I think Ms. Marvel, there's like a real satisfaction to making your fists big and popping somebody. What about like a plastic man game where you could really turn into anything, almost like a comedic superhero game? It'd be tough to it'd be tough to quantify that into a repeatable thing. Like, do you have like you pull up the weapon wheel and there's like be a cuckoo clock? Like <laughs> uh, I'm playing Marvel Superheroes Legos with uh my son Cameron. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of what they do in this game is you build little platforms and the okay. platforms will have a superhero s- symbol on it. And then that superhero can stand there and become a thing um, to like, you know, solve a puzzle or whatever. So like there'll be a shield thing and Captain America will get on it and deflect a beam and blow something up. But the Fantastic Four logos means Mr. Fantastic gets on it. And unlike what he ever does in the comics, he becomes crazy things he becomes like steam shovels and <laughs> screwdrivers and mousetraps everybody just um, wants plastic man they don't want mr fantastic they want plastic man i mean mr fantastic is just a smart guy who occasionally stretches his arms to pick up a test tube right uh, uh and it is very fun and silly um <laughs> anyway that's all but that is what my son's opinion of mr fantastic is built around now <laughs> um Andrew Williamson writes, I recently found the show through CBB. 
um, and love it. I grew up on the 90s Fox cartoons and the movies, but never read comic books before the pandemic. Your excitement for the original Spider-Man run convinced me to read it and follow along. Currently up to issue 21. I also listened to your season on the Hulk, which was great. I was wondering if you two do signings. Um, I live in New York, would happy to go to UCB. Sorry, it doesn't exist anymore, Andrew, or wherever. Um, I mean, I would sign a Spider-Man comic. I think it's a bad move. Yeah, I think it's a bad decision on your part. But um, um, now that the pandemic seems to be subsiding, I guess if we can ever do a live show, we'd be interested in it. I mean, we live on different coasts. We might not have enough of an audience, but we're into it. So I'll tell you what, we'll set up a live showing in New York and you are compelled to go. You have to go. Yeah, you don't have to. We'll comp your ticket, okay, in exchange, but you got to come watch us. And if it's just you, even better. <laughs> be really live fun. show at stage. Andrew Williamson, yeah, in the audience with his uh, uh, Lee Ditko uh, comic book <laughs> for us to sign. Yeah, um, to devalue it. I mean, it'll absolutely it certainly would devalue it. the value of the book. Anybody who's involved in comics would be a better like, get Sam sure. Rosen to sign it. Sam Rosen would be great, great to have sign it. The letterer, yeah. sure. Uh, he recommends Donny Cates and Stegman's Venom run mm-hmm. uh, and Chip Zdarsky's Daredevil run for us to read. Uh, Chip Zdarsky's Daredevil run is good. I agree with that. I have not read enough of the Stegman uh, Venom stuff. Okay, so no comment on that, but we love Chip. Uh, David Diamond says, would you rather have Wolverine's claws or Cyclops's eyes? Uh, I have my answer, Kev. What's yours? I mean, claws, I guess. Yeah. The eyes are a pain. Yeah. Got to have a bunch I mean, of ruby if, if the sunglasses eyes worked, on you at all if, time. If the eyes worked like they should, like where he didn't have to wear the ruby quartz, I guess I'd prefer that. Because I think the claws would sort of be heavy and awkward. I wouldn't want either. I'll be honest. Yeah. I don't think the, the claws way. would be useful enough. I think they would be too awkward to like trim my hedges. Yeah. We're, Kevin and I don't have a lifestyle where we need to like take out some guards, you know, like who are, you know, outside the hellfire club. I just need to type. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if, so I had to have one, if like, it wasn't a choice, neither is not a choice. I assume I'm going to take the claws cause Me I can too. put them away and I guess it'd be cool. Party trick. And yeah. if like, if like in a road rage moment, if, if I, uh, if I cut somebody off by accident and they got mad at me, I could just pull up the claws and that might. Yeah get me out of trouble but that's never happened to me i've never needed them in that case but i guess that yeah. could happen i drew drive in new jersey for cooking it would be good good food prep i think that would be such a pain to clean i think it'd be all right snicks, also snicks, i guess snicks, it'd be snicks. i also don't have his heel do i don't do i get his healing factor otherwise well, least, i might never pull them out yeah because they just burst through your skin right yeah we gotta have the healing factor at least on that hand <laughs> that'd be a horrible deal otherwise yeah. It's like, I have these claws. I'm not going to show them to you. It hurts too much. It rips through the skin of my hand. And then there's scars for like three weeks. So I can't, I'm sorry. You'll have to just trust me on this. I have Wolverine's claws. <laughs> Should I take in the eyes? Everyone would believe it. Uh, last one, Will. Uh, Chris Huber writes, Howdy Milk Socks. I just finished reading the uh, Jerry Conway run on Amazing Spider-Man. 111 to 149. This just feels appropriate for what we were just talking about, uh, which I had read some, but not all of previously. And I was blown away. I read that Conway was only 19 when he took over for Stan Lee, which is crazy. 
It is a really fun run with memorable arcs like Gwen Stacy and the Green Goblin stuff with Norman and Harry. And there are also some fun new characters like Hammerhead, Punisher, the Jackal, and of course, the return of the Kangaroo. <laughs> we also cycle backs through a lot of the Ditko Rogues Gallery. Any chance y'all would cover this on the show would be fun to get back to some Spidey. That's all I got. Have a good one, fellas. It's tempting to go back to Spider-Man. We love Spider-Man, but I think we do have a number, number of other things that are going to be higher on the list. But there would be something interesting about that, that era. I agree. It might be a fun way if like, we were wrapping up to do like a mini season on Spider-Man. To, to book, to book our, end our yeah. podcast, yeah, yeah, to force the theme. Can you imagine if we wrap we up really for like have. two years? We're like, we're just going to cover some highlights of the Spider-Man era. And we do it for two years. Yeah, uh, I've read. I've read. I think I've read the whole Jerry Conway. I'm not sure. Um, I think that was in the essential stuff I ran. It, it's it gets fuzzy where I sort of got disillusioned. I definitely lost a lot of interest during the. Uh, um, lifeline tablet storyline and i don't remember when that was and i definitely read beyond that but i don't remember how much further beyond it mm. i might not have read all of jerry conway's which you know that i mean i definitely read the gwen stacy and captain stacy storylines um uh, th- thanks for the thought. importance yeah thank you for all the emails guys we'll try to answer a few each episode since we're not going to have you doing full mailbag episodes for like a month yeah, uh, and in the meantime, get reading on Thunderbolts 1, and we'll we'll cover it next episode. Yeah, uh, and let us know what you think of Kurt, what you think of Marvels, what you think of that era of comic books in general. What you think of Eddie Deason and War Games? Yeah, if you're if you're just listening for the War Games portions of our podcast, please give us some what, what character Deason should play in a modern movie, like a John Wick <laughs> character maybe. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, that's it. We'll see you guys next week. Bye. Screw it, screw it. We're just gonna talk about comics.